0: Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. And Esau, concerning things to come, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Chapter 11, remember, began with an explanation of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And then it continued with examples of faith. In verse 4, Abel. Verse 5, Enoch Verse 7, Noah. Verse 8, Abraham and Sarah. Verse and, And now, verse 20, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So, as we look at the chapter and we ask the question and we examine what the Bible says about faith. And then the examples of faith. Why is faith necessary? And remember what we've already learned. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to receive God's approval in verse 6. By faith, we believe the promises of God and the power of God to make good those promises. Our examples of faith, again, have included a journey through the book of Genesis. It began with Abel, but it mirrors the chapters in the book of Genesis. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And now in brief, Isaac in verse 20, Jacob in verse 21, Joseph in verse 22. And it would appear that faith can be passed on. And believed by our children and our grandchildren. Isaac believed the word that was passed to him from his father Abraham. And then conferred the blessing on Jacob. The story is found in Genesis chapter 27. Jacob begins in failure. But still, when he comes to the end of his life... He will have faith in God's word. And by the way, the Bible describes his family's future, including the blessings of Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh before he dies. In Genesis chapter 48, Joseph believes that God will one day deliver Israel from Egypt because that's what God Promised Abraham and promised Isaac and promised Jacob and passed on to Joseph. How in the world do we explain Joseph having any faith at all? When we consider the fact that his own brother has almost had him killed. That he's the victim of human trafficking. He's unjustly accused of sexual assault. He serves time in prison. Combine that with spending most of your life in a pagan culture. And then rising to the peak of power. And still you believe that there's a real God who loves you. Has a plan for you and a purpose for you. Like the Hebrews, most of you know these stories by heart. Some of you don't. For some of you, this is all brand new. And for some of you, the stories of Abraham, the stories of Isaac, the stories of Jacob, you know them like you know your own life. You know, it's one thing to know the stories by heart. And it's another thing to take the story to heart. Have you allowed them to enrich your faith and establish your faith and encourage your faith? Does your faith include counting on the promise of God and the purposes of God for your own life? Because guess what this passage really will do? It invites you Not to just simply think about your past or even your present, but to think just for a moment, just for a moment, what the future might hold. What do you see? What do you see in your future? Does it involve blessing? Does it involve fulfillment? And so, think about it. As we look at these three generations of faith. Isaac. Jacob. Joseph. Look at verse 20. The future of faith. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac was given a glimpse into the future. The Lord told both Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob... Was going to receive the blessing. He actually made a promise. He said that the that the younger, that the older son would serve the younger. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the story is found in part in the book of Genesis. But before we get into the story, I want you to read a promise that God made in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. In chapter 24. A bride is sought for Isaac. You'll remember the story that Eli goes to the land of his ancestors. A bride is brought back to Isaac. Abraham weds Keturah in chapter 25. But when you get down to the genealogy and you come to chapter 25, verse 23... His wife is pregnant. It says in verse 24, well, actually in verse 23, the Lord said to her, this is to Rebecca Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And then it says in verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. The struggle in Rebekah's womb was a prophetic picture of the struggle of the descendants that would come from her womb. She would have twins, one Esau, and Esau would become the father of a group of people called the Edomites. And the descendants of Jacob would become what you and I call the Israelites. The Lord promised and prophesied that the younger would occupy the place of preeminence. This is unusual in that culture and society because usually the blessings and the preeminence is assigned to the elder. We find the story in Genesis chapter 27. And in Genesis chapter 27, Isaac is... We find Isaac towards the end of his life. Now, just a couple of quick words about Isaac. Isaac has been called the mediocre son of a great man and the mediocre father of a great son, but that's probably not charitable nor fair. The Bible pictures Isaac in five places. On a mountain... By a field alongside the desert wells and in a Philistine garrison and at a supper table. We're introduced to him as a submissive son being used as a burnt offering. And remember we already talked about that with Abraham who offers his son Isaac. We then find him as a gentle groom in his mother's tent. He's given the promise by God concerning his wife's pregnancy. He and Ishmael bury their father. Isaac repeats the sin of his father... In in a time of famine, he will leave the place where he lives. He will go to, uh, he will leave the land of Canaan. He will move into the area of the Philistines. He, like his father, will lie to King Abimelech concerning Rebekah, his wife, who he will identify as his sister. And once again, Abimelech discovers the truth, embarrasses Isaac when he finds out about his deceit. But in spite of all of this stuff, we see Isaac blessed by God, even though he's plagued by compromise. I think you've already begun to discover something, that the Bible doesn't play hard and fast with its heroes. The Bible doesn't cover their faults, their foibles, their sins, their failures, for some of you, you might wonder, well, why, why doesn't it? I don't want people to know all of my faults, my foibles, and my f- failures. I think that the Bible does this to give you hope where you go, you mean this person was a jerk and God loved him anyway? You, think, th- th- you mean this person made a mistake and God loved him anyway? A divided home will often lead to carnal divisions. And when we come to the home of Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac is about 137 years old in chapter 27 of Genesis. He's 137 years old, and if a 137-year-old said to you normally, I'm towards the end of my life and I could die at any moment, most of you would go, I get that. 137, fairly old. But Isaac is going to live to be 180 years old. Isn't that funny? From 137 years old, he's always thinking about dying. Now, he acts like he could die at any moment throughout the whole chapter. And some Bible teachers and scholars have interpreted his impatience to give the blessing to Esau as proof that Isaac was following his own carnal plans and not God's will. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the chapter, you might just turn there real quick. In in Genesis chapter 27, we have the story of the blessing, and many of you are familiar with it, how Jacob winds up stealing the blessing, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, it says it comes to pass when Isaac was old, 137, his eyes were so dim that he couldn't see that he calls Esau, his older son. And he says to him, my son, and he answers, here I am. And then he says, behold, now I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go out in the field and hunt some game for me. Most of you are familiar with the story. Esau's going to uh, go out into the field, make some stew. Um, His mom is going to, Rebecca is going to tell um, Jacob, Hey, look, uh, your brother's out in the field hunting. Uh, your Your dad's getting ready to give out the blessing. And I want you to pretend like you're your brother. And Jacob realizes that this is really wrong. What if dad finds out? What if, it, what if I'm discovered? What if this goes terribly, terribly wrong? Now, part of the, the point that is made in the passage is the deception brought on by Rebecca, perpetrated by Jacob, but what a lot of people forget is the passage that I just read to you. God promised that Rebecca was going to have twins. God promised that the older would serve the younger. But somewhere along the line, it would appear that Isaac either forgets the blessing, he forgets the promise in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. In the story, a lot of emphasis is placed on the senses, feeling, eating, smelling, and, and blindness. Feelings take precedence over faith in God's promise. Feeding the body becomes more important than fulfilling God's will. Isaac, in his younger days, remember, he willingly goes with his father. To Mount Moriah, they march up a mountain. Remember, I already told you that Isaac is basically a full grown young man and he willingly will will give himself as a sacrifice. In other words, there's a time in Isaac's life where he's quite literally willing to die for the Lord. But something has happened, something has changed. How did it come to this? How did it come to the place where Isaac seemingly seems to disregard the promise and be so preoccupied with something else? And quite literally, Isaac favors Esau over Jacob. And clearly, Rebecca had been told by God that the younger son would inherit the blessing and provide the seed. But instead of praying and waiting for God's will to unfold, she will take the matter into her own hands and say, I know that God gave this promise to me and to Isaac, but Isaac loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. Everything seems to be going totally wrong in our family." Now, ladies, no lady in her right mind would try to help God along in fulfilling God's will for their family, which, oh, wait a minute, maybe some would. But guess what? In order to understand God's will and obey God's will, we also have to obey God's will God's way. And Rebecca is going to pay dearly for her deception and for her sin. Do you know how? She's never, ever, she's never, ever going to see her son ever again after this chapter. She's going to send him away. And from chapters 43 through 45, her son is going to go away and she's not going to see him again. Esau deliberately acted in order to hurt his mom. And her sinful example will send Jacob on a 25-year-old trial. Jacob will participate in the deception. And then later in chapter 12, verse 7 of the book of Hebrews, we see Esau seeking a blessing from God even with tears, but he will find no real place of repentance. He was sorry for what he lost, but he wasn't sorry for what he did. And in the passage of chapter 27, verse 33, in Genesis, Isaac trembles when he realizes that God has overruled his plans. Esau's tears aren't going to change Isaac's mind or alter God's plan or blessing. And haven't you ever wondered how when Jacob deceives his father... And he quite literally blesses Jacob. And Esau comes crying and says, give me a blessing too. Give me a blessing too. Hasn't it ever, Haven't you ever thought to yourself, well, why didn't he just change his mind? Why didn't he say, you know what? You tricked me. The blessing's not real. But I'm going to suggest to you that even though Isaac preferred Esau... And even though Isaac wanted to pass the blessing on to his son Esau, it wasn't God's plan and it wasn't God's will and it wasn't according to God's promise. What if I suggested to you that at first Isaac was reluctant to obey God, that he planned to ignore God's will, and that he planned to bless Esau in spite of God's will? What I think that this all means is that at some point, Isaac understands, remembers the promise, submits to God's will, and submits to God's plan. You see, sin in the home always brings heartache, and it always brings family separation, Esau will plot to murder his brother. Everyone will suffer because of the unbelief and the disobedience. And so guess what? Chapter 27 of Genesis isn't the finest hour for the family of faith. Isaac hasn't been exactly a stand-up kind of a father. And Jacob has not been exactly a stand-up kind of son. And Rebekah hasn't been exactly the woman of faith that we had hoped for. But it's interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews interprets the story or the incident. Look, read it for yourself. By faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come, the future. Remember what I asked you when we've been studying this chapter? I asked you what exactly did Abel believe? And what exactly did Enoch believe? And what exactly did did Noah believe? And what exactly did Abraham and Sarah believe? And what exactly does Isaac believe? I'm going to suggest to you that Isaac believes That God gave a promised seed and God gave a promised land and Isaac lived his life in faith. And Isaac will, even though in an incomplete, in an imperfect way, he will live his life in faith. He will die in faith. In the end, Isaac repents, believes God's promise and does God's will. You see, it's one thing to know God's will and completely disregard it. It's another thing to know God's will and play on the outskirts of whether or not you're going to obey him or disobey him. And I'm going to suggest to you that according to the writer of Hebrews, Isaac begins to understand that in spite of his unfortunate willingness to favor one son over the other and to somehow misunderstand, misinterpret or misapply the promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 25. In the end he repents and he realizes that God has a plan for his family, a future for his family, a seed for his family, a land for his family he really believes that God has made a promise and that God is going to keep his promise. And in the end, the promised Messiah is going to come through Jacob. Two sons, Esau, Jacob, two kings. One, King Jesus, who will come through Jacob, and then Judah, and then David, and the other, Esau's children will give birth to King Herod. Did you know that? Herod is it. was called an Edomite. He was from Idumea, which is the homeland of the descendants of Esau. You see, It becomes a type and a picture. God has a king in mind. It's King Jesus. And Satan has another king in mind. It's the substitute king. And look at the blessing of faith in verse 21. It says, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. That story is found in Genesis chapter 48. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 48, we're only going to look at just a few passages from there. But in Genesis chapter 48, I should have marked it, beginning in verse 1, It says, now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me behold i will make you fruitful and multiply you and i will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession and now your two sons ephraim and manasseh who were born to you in the land of egypt before i came to you in egypt are mine as simon and, and as reuben and simon they shall be mine Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. And then fast forward to verse 13. Look what it says. And Joseph took them both. And Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And brought them near. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. Who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. There are several important points. The event takes place when Jacob is dying. Jacob blesses both sons of Joseph. Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph, reminding them that their place in the promised land and their portion in the promised seed must be fulfilled. And I want you to see the link. Abraham believes in a promised land and a promised seed. Isaac believes in a promised land and a promised seed. Jacob believes in a promised land and a promised seed. And Jacob imparts to Joseph's children that they too will be participants in this particular place. I need you to think for a moment. The sons of Joseph are born in Egypt, but their future is elsewhere. Jacob worships, worships while dying. When it says in, in the text, but by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. That expression, leaning on the top of the staff in Hebrews, it's an idiomatic expression which means that he is frail, that he is weak that he's dependent. I mean, if you've ever seen a person who has a, a cane or a staff and they lean on, on that. So, but, but what does Jacob do? He continues to rise. He worships God to the very end of his life. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, remember what we read earlier in the passage in Genesis chapter 48. He gets up he, he lifts himself up. And, and, and why, why does the Bible seem to say that? I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible seems to say that he gets up and he's blessing his children. And he's blessing the children of, of, of Joseph because he worships the Lord to the very end of his life. Question. Does Jacob have less than a perfect life? Does he have a history of deceit and disobedience? Does it catch up with him in the end? I think that the answer is yes. But even though he has an imperfect record, he really does believe the promise of God. He really does believe in God. He believes the promise of the land and the seed to the very end. I want to just bring out just a couple of things just for your information. Jacob will spend the last 17 of his 147 years on the earth in Egypt. Jacob enjoys his favorite son Joseph when Joseph is born to his beloved wife. And Joseph will turn one and two and then five and then ten. And when Joseph turns about 17 years old, his brothers will sell him into slavery. Jacob has a relationship with his son for the first 17 years of his life. Jacob has a relationship with his son for the last 17 years of his life. I find that odd and interesting. Jacob calls Joseph to his bed in chapter 47, verse 31, in order to bless Joseph's two sons. By this time, the two boys are probably in their early 20s. And Jacob will claim these boys as his own and grant to them the status of the first and the second born, Reuben and Simeon in a very real sense. Later in Genesis, Simeon and Levi will in effect disappear as separate tribes so that Ephraim and Manasseh will take their place. In other words, there is both a blessing and a curse that's pronounced knowing that Manasseh is the oldest. Joseph puts his firstborn at Jacob's right hand and Ephraim at the left hand. And at the blessing, Jacob purposely, knowingly, crosses his hands. And I find this interesting, too. The reason why I find it interesting is, first of all, what happens. When he does this, it displeases Joseph. But according to the Bible and according to the biblical text, Jacob is guided by God Because God was going to give the greater blessing to Ephraim. Warren Wearsby speaks of this as a divine principle of setting aside the first in order to bless the second. And and there's a little bit of a a statement made about that in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9. Remember where it says, then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second What in the world does that mean? Well, it occurred in Seth and Cain. Instead of the older, God chose the younger. It happened to Isaac and Ishmael. Instead of the older, God chose the younger. It happened with Esau and Jacob. Instead of the older, God chose the younger. We can even go so far as to say that with David... Does God choose David's older brothers who were bigger, taller, and and impressive? No. He chooses David because it's, he says, Samuel, remember, says, it's not on the outside that matters. It's what's on the inside that matters. And it's interesting to me that Jacob's arms form a cross And I wonder if it's a stretch to think about a future cross, the cross of Calvary, where one nature is set aside. Our carnal nature, our fallen nature, our sinful nature, and a new nature is given in its place. When you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says the old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. There is this this principle in the Bible of setting aside something that is old or wrong, if you will, and then replacing it with something that is young and new. When you're born again, God rearranges your spiritual birth order. And the reason why this becomes so important is because some of you may have been born in circumstances that that were less than ideal. And you wonder, because of your life, and because of the circumstances that you were born in, and the difficulty and the sin that you experienced, Either poverty or tragedy or or failure. How could God possibly use you? And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus washes you and cleanses you. And Jesus says, even though you may have given up on yourself, I haven't given up on you because I have a plan for you and a purpose for you. In the end, Jacob's blessing reveals both the character of his children and the destiny of his children. And the reason why I think all of that is important is because your character will play an important part in your future. This becomes really important, especially if you've had less than a noble character prior to coming to Christ. And you are willing to concede and you say, you know, I've... I've done some bad things and I've even said some bad things and I'm I've been involved in maybe even some wicked things but then Jesus shows up and he begins to change you and mold you and shape you your heart becomes changed and your your way you speak becomes changed you become a different person And because you're a different person you're going to have a different future Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob and he should have inherited a great glory and honor but his sin his sin cost him a blessing. And Jacob would be identified as the lion, the king of beasts, and out of Judah would come the lawgiver, Christ, who would come and be the rightful king of Israel. And in chapter 48, verse 10, it predicts that Shiloh, the one who gives rest, will be the rightful king, and he will come until Judah will lose his rule. And suddenly it's true in Jesus. Everything that Jacob says about his children, it comes to pass. God gives Isaac a peek into the future and he gives Jacob a peek into the future and he gives... Joseph a peek into the future because God's plans and purposes are going to unfold just as God has always planned. And you see, when you open up your Bible and you begin to read the prophecies that are given, and you begin to read the the, the statements that are made in places like the book of Revelation, and you begin to understand that the Bible gives you a peek into your future, A future where no matter how little time you have left or how long the time that you have left, God has a a promise for you. That if you know and love Jesus, that he's going to find you and then take you. And Jacob pronounces a material and a spiritual blessing on Joseph. Because in the end, Joseph is a prince among his brethren. Joseph suffers the most. And he'll receive the greatest blessing. You know, at funerals, I'm fond of saying a little bit of prose. There's a bit of prose that goes something like, measure your life not in the wine that you drink. Wait, measure your life. can't believe I can't remember the quote. Don't you hate that? Do you realize I used to have a photographic memory and now the film has gone completely bad. (laughs) Measure your life, not in the wine that you drink, but in the wine that's poured forth because love's strength stands in love's sacrifice. And he who suffers most has the most to give. The Bible seems to reflect that. The person who suffers the most has the most to give. And in this passage, Jacob in life is proud and strong and self-sufficient. But at the end of his life, while he's dying, it, it's a picture of a person who is frail, blessing, worshipping, leaning. It took years for the proud self-sufficient Jacob to be broken and humbled into the person who came to depend upon the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Jacob dies not in the land but away from the land remember he and his family were forced into the land of egypt they were driven into the land of egypt because of a global famine but he knew that that's not where he belonged he knew that god had a different plan for him and for his family and for his future And so look at verse 22. Look what it says. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, think about what you just read. By faith, when he was dying, Joseph made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. Joseph, by faith, peers into the future. Isaac sees into the future. Jacob sees into the future. Joseph sees into the future. And he sees the fulfillment of faith. He sees the time unfolding quickly. He sees there come a time when the leaders of Egypt will forget him. Past the centuries of slavery. So there, he sees a generation come and then he sees another generation go. He sees the generation where people forget that he even exists. He, he sees past the centuries of slavery. He sees a, a time when his family in the future leave Egypt and go back to the promised land. And then it says, Joseph gives instructions concerning his bones, read remains. So when it says he gave instructions about his remains, why why is that important? Because once again, Joseph realizes that even though he has spent the majority of his life in Egypt, which becomes a type and a picture of the world, It was never intended to be his final resting place. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul spoke to the Christians as members of of Christ's body. His flesh and bones, he refers to them in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 30. In Psalm verse 34 we read, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Jehovah delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. What's interesting to me about that psalm in Psalm 34, it's a messianic psalm, and it's it's a messianic psalm where the psalmist predicts that David's son, his body will be preserved in such a way that none of his bones will be broken. In other words, God knew about Jesus's life and he knew about Jesus's death and he knows about Jesus's corpse and he knows about Jesus's burial and that he's going to preserve his body in such a way because he has a plan and a purpose and he's going to bring the body back to life Scholars have long known that this messianic psalm is what's quoted in John's gospel, chapter 19, verses 31 through 36, where the, where the, the disciples and the apostles realize the, the prophecy that a bone of him shall not be broken. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because, remember, it says Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of his departure of the children of Israel. He sees the exodus take place. He gives instructions concerning his corpse that as the centuries unfold, that his children will remember That he doesn't belong in Egypt. He belongs in the place that God has promised to him and his children. And the story of Joseph is one of the great stories in the Bible. Isaac has an imperfect walk and an imperfect faith. Jacob has an imperfect walk and an imperfect faith. But do you realize there's only two people in all of the Bible that not one bad thing is said about them? One of those people is Joseph. The other person is Daniel in the book of Daniel. We could make the case that Joseph's faith is is one of the crown jewels in the diadem that's worn by the Savior. Joseph believed in the promises of God... Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Joseph believes in the promises of God that were made by Abraham, passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob, and then passed on to Joseph. He believed the promise of God, but he will experience the most severe circumstance. You know, you probably hear a lot of people say, you know, I I thought about being a Christian and I thought about walking with Christ and then something terrible happened. Something terrible happened to me. Somebody injured me. Somebody took advantage of me. Somebody hurt me. Joseph will remain faithful even when most would almost certainly abandon their faith. If anyone could make a case for abandoning the faith of his father's, It's Joseph. Imagine Joseph says, well, wait a minute. Tell me again, who's your father? Jacob. And who was his father? Isaac. And who was his father? Abraham. You mean you're a part of the family of God and the people of God? Talk about having the worst experience ever with the so-called family of God. But Joseph is the favored son. He's the faithful steward. He's the forgotten servant. He'll become the forgiving saint he, according to the promise, will be this fruitful shade tree. And remember, the story of Joseph begins in chapter 37, where we see Joseph as the favored son. The story begins with Joseph's dreams, and then it continues with Judah's schemes. And then we're told which brother would would, would come up with the idea of doing away with Joseph, but we're not Totally certain. Which was the brother who thought it was a good idea? Let's kill our brother and let's sell him into slavery. Was it Simeon, threatened by the rights and privileges usually granted to the firstborn? which was eventually taken away from Reuben in Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. But the Bible describes Simeon as crafty and cruel in Genesis chapter 42, verse 24. And Joseph is going to exercise some some rather severe harshness with Simeon and the other brothers when they eventually have to go back into Egypt. And you'll remember, they have to somehow get Benjamin back. And, And Joseph is just a little bit... Cruel, if you want to use that term. But the picture in the Bible of Joseph is as a faithful steward in in chapters 38 and 39. He learns the discipline of service and the discipline of self-control and the discipline of suffering. And in Genesis 40, Joseph is the forgotten servant as he lies rotting away in jail. In Genesis chapter 40 through 45, we see him elevated to the place of authority and majesty. And in the end, Joseph will save his father. He will save his family. He will save the people. He's sold into slavery. He's accused of sexual assault he's thrown in jail he lives under the most intense trials that you can imagine and when his family finally shows up and when joseph finally reveals himself to his family He promises to nourish them and protect them and he weeps over them and he kisses them and he sends for his father. And the last chapters of Genesis close with Jacob's last journey and blessing and request. But when you read in Hebrews chapter 11, read it for yourself. It says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying made mention of the departure, that's the exodus of the children of Israel, and then gave instructions concerning his bones. Why does Jacob and Joseph so desperately, so desperately want everyone to remember that they don't belong here. They belong somewhere else you know it's interesting to me joseph's faith was the kind of faith that he believed that god made a promise and that god would provide a land and he knew he knew he knew that one day he would rest In the place that God assigned for him. And you know what's interesting to me too? Joseph's brothers didn't really believe Joseph's testimony. When Jacob died, they had this big speech that they said, You know, right before our father died, he just basically said, Please, please, Joseph, forgive your brothers because they were weird and wicked, yes, but please, please don't hurt them. Does Joseph want to hurt his brothers? He really doesn't. Did he really mean it when he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good? Did he mean that? I think that he really did. In their blindness, the brothers wanted to earn their brother Joseph's forgiveness. But guess what? Can you earn real forgiveness? Does it have to be freely given? Can you earn God's forgiveness? The answer is no. Genesis began in a garden and it ends in a grave. And you know what's interesting to me? The Bible ends with a description of a beautiful garden and a beautiful garden city in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It ends with this picture of being with God forever in heaven. You know, a lot of Bible teachers have have pointed out the types and the shadows of Jesus found in Joseph. Both are beloved by their fathers. Both refer to themselves as shepherds. Both are sent by their fathers to their brethren. Both are hated by their brothers for no good reason. Both Jesus and Joseph are plotted against. Both Jesus and Joseph are tempted. Both Jesus and Joseph are hated by their brothers for no good reason. Both Jesus and and Joseph are plotted against, severely tempted, taken to Egypt, stripped of their robes, sold as a slave, bound in impoverished prison falsely accused experience god's presence under the most difficult of circumstances rejected by their their jailers placed with two prisoners one is lost one is saved both begin their ministry at about the age of 30 both are highly exalted after extreme suffering both take non-jewish brides joseph marries a woman from egypt Jesus, He takes you. You're his bride. Some of you may be Jewish, but most of you are Gentiles. And he says, "I want you to be my bride. I want you to be the one who accompanies for me forever and ever." Both are lost to their brothers. At least for a little while. Both forgive and restore their repentant brothers. And both are honored by the kings of this world. When Joseph is eventually elevated. The kings come from all over the known world. And they give Joseph honor. Because he In a very real sense, is the Savior because He has saved the grain, and it's because of Him it's going to be possible that people will eat. And the Bible sees a time when Jesus will be the King on His throne, and the kings from around the nations of the earth will acknowledge that He's the rightful Lord. And you know, God cared for them both down to the bone. God preserves Jesus' bones. Not one of them is broken. God preserves Joseph's bones so that they're taken out of the place where they don't belong to the place where they'll always belong. You know, the Jewish reader would have recognized that God's dealing with Isaac and Jacob And Joseph were all a part of a divine plan, and that the predictions were going to be fulfilled. So, what do Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all have in common? They have knowledge of God passed down to them from Abraham. They each received a prophetic vision, they each also had a clear choice. Each of them believed God. Believed his promise. Believed in the seed, who is a savior, and a land where they belonged. You know, it's interesting to me. In the end, Isaac knew that in spite of his weakness and favor towards the older brother, God had a different plan and a different future. The older would serve the younger. And much of the Bible is devoted to Jacob's failure but by the time we get to the end of the book Jacob will worship and serve the Lord bless his children and remind them of God's future again remember what we've learned by faith Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice Enoch by faith Enoch pleases God and is taken Avoiding death by faith, Noah builds an ark and rescues his family. By faith, Abraham follows God, believes God, the promises of a son, and offers that son as a sacrifice. By faith, Isaac blesses his son's future. By faith, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. By faith, Joseph speaks prophetically of a future where they're able to leave Egypt and go to the place where they belong. You see, this is why we're spending so much time on this issue. Because it becomes a picture of your faith. What you really believe about your future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, thanks for these men and women of faith. Thank you for their example. Thank you for their inclusion. And thank you, Lord, that with each one, there is a picture of how our faith can grow, mature. That in spite of setbacks, failures, disappointments, even compromise, that we too can be men and women of faith will hold on, hold on, hold on to the promises of God. Hold on, hold on, hold on to the sacred seed, our Savior. And hold on and hold on and hold on. And remember that this place is not our home. In Jesus' name. Amen.